people need to kind of go through hardship. You need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Because that's how growth happens. I think mm. it's that it's that sort of um comparison isn't it, between um privilege and mindset. Mindset something that kind of is is born out of, you know, distress or tough times, dark times and I was like, I never want to go hungry again. I never want to be mm. that person where I have to literally scrimp and save just to have a meal. Dominic Joyce, welcome back to the Purpose Led Leadership Podcast. You are on my show back in the day in season one. This is season four. I'm delighted to have you back on. We've become really close friends over the last few years. We met on LinkedIn, um, 44,000 followers I think you're up to now on there. For those that don't know you, and there's not many people that don't, <laughs> give us an overview of what you actually do now. Um, so I guess my main job is a head of talent acquisition for a company um, in financial services. I guess previously I've done, I've been my own boss. So I've run my own company with career consultancy, CV writing for four years been working in recruitment 10 years now, pretty much on the nose, and create content around the TA space mm. on LinkedIn. I guess just trying to call out all the BS and yeah. the break with the noise that you see on there. And just, I think being quoted saying that I talk about the things that people think about, but don't speak about. Yeah. So that's kind of, I guess, what I do. Yeah. I mean, I've got to say, I love your content. I love you as a human being, but your content is very forthright honest there's humor to it and it's no wonder you're doing well with that i want to touch on that first actually before we go back into your journey i want to talk to you a lot about recruitment but also let's start let's actually start with linkedin um for me that the linkedin landscape has changed quite a lot over the last 18 months two years what's 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 good bad and ugly about it from your point of view i think one thing that's people get so wrapped up in vanity metrics and likes and views without really looking at the sole purpose of what they're doing. So people will talk about, I've had X amount of views on their, on their content. When in reality, all you do is literally copy and paste a motivational quote from Instagram, um, which don't get it wrong. I've copied photos and memes and gifts elsewhere, made my own, but I've always added kind of context to it. Yeah. Or related it to the, the TA career space. I think as well, a lot of people kind of lose a bit of trust of LinkedIn, I find. I think it's it's becoming very, choose the words carefully here. Mm. I think it's, it's kind of losing its way a little bit as of what it does and what it offers. Yeah. I think people are kind of becoming a bit disillusioned with the content as well, because of course, mm. it's only platform we think about where you don't really generate any income from your content and views. Mm. If you look at places like- right, not directly, right. Yeah. No. So you, you look at TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, anything you put out in content-wise, it gains tens of thousands of views. Yeah. Whereas I think with LinkedIn, it's a case of, well, what's the purpose behind it? What's the benefit to it? I think in my sense, you know, I think I had 9 million views on my content last year on LinkedIn. Nice. Which, you know, perhaps somewhere else wouldn't have... Uh, when they pay off the mortgage, but we definitely would have given a little bit of cash extra for the daughter or mm. so I think it's a very tough platform because it's obviously going to be, it's still what you call a monopoly, isn't it? Yeah. No one's really going to compete with LinkedIn right now. No. Anything that does, they'll probably acquire it. I mean, I agree with you. I think speaking personally of, of myself, I think even myself, I lost my way that little bit. I was getting sucked into that thirsty, put a selfie on kind of like, so I've did, over the last month or two, I've deliberately backed away from it and really evaluated what my purpose is. And now I probably only post three times a week, whereas you to post twice a day. Mm. But it's it's about for me, it's about is this adding value? I want to add value. Yes, the odd personal post thinks important, but I think it has become a little bit saturated with a selfie and a story. They get the likes, they get the validation. But ultimately, what does that actually do for your so I think it actually I, I think that for me personally, a case of less is more and what's the benefit, what's the purpose of me doing it? Ultimately, is to get business. And mm. I think some people, if they're the choice of likes, comment and engagement versus pounds and money, they'll choose the former because they're so sucked into that kind of, that mm. thing. What do you think? 
I agree. I think we've both had this chat before offline and we've we've discussed that perhaps posts we put out that have had 10, 20 likes yeah. have generated customers and clients. So I'd also agree in the, in the space around, you know, as you call it, thirst trap selfies, whilst yeah. I think a business owner, self-employed, mm. needs to basically elevate the personal brand and tell people who they are, yes. what they do, yeah. what their drivers are. Quite often you'll see on there, irrelevant selfies backed up by a job post or yeah and i think it's a case of well what's the benefit to the picture yeah yeah and what's the benefit what you're trying to achieve from this whereas mm. you definitely see a lot more now i think people trying to sell themselves yes alongside the business idea because it's the whole cliche isn't it people yeah. buy people so yeah, i yeah. think there's definitely a lot more around here's me here's my kids here's my dog which i think has a purpose and i think it's down to mm. As we discussed before, it's varied content. So you don't want always no. personal posts. But equally, it's like a case after a while, what's this person's angle? What are they really pushing? So how do you plan your content then? How, do you just wake up each day and go, I'm going to post that? Or do you have a bit of a process behind it? It's bizarre. I'll be totally honest. I, my content comes to me on the toilet, in the showers, yeah. on the on the tube. Yeah. Um, I've got on my, on my notes there content that just comes to me if i'm yeah yeah i think i was once in in bista and was trying on a t-shirt it was a 2xl and i was like i'm a 2xl but it literally would have you'd have to cat pop me into it, it was that tight and i was like okay so it's meant to be the right fit but it's not the right fit mm. so again made that covenant in a analogous format about yeah. company fit so i always think as well like perhaps what do we not talk about in a ta space yeah but perhaps from the recruitment side do we not call out around things like onboarding, yeah. offboarding. Yes. That's kind of where it comes from. I think also to get attention, my best performing posts have always had tied to it a meme, a gif, mm -hmm. some kind of photo that's funny. personality to it, yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. The kind of, it kind of almost tones down the, the subject a little bit or at yeah. least provides some kind of comedic value or relation to it. And that's kind of why it performs well. I want to know more about your history and your journey. I mean, I love the eclectic mix of you've got knowledge and experience as a, as a, a talent acquisition specialist. And I, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of talent acquisition. I actually think there's a lot of bullshit around people that in recruitment saying uh, talent acquisition specialists are failed recruiters. I think talent acquisition is much harder than archetypal recruitment. And I want to talk to you about that. Mm. I want to talk to you about RPO. I want to talk to you about, you talk, talk, talk to you about CE writing, all that kind of stuff. Loads about recruitment and your journey, but... On your LinkedIn profile, it says you've seen and heard most things in recruitment that would be a bestseller on Amazon or something like mm. that. Give us some examples of sort of the, the best and worst or whatever you've you've heard you've seen in recruitment. Yeah, I think I've just seen a lot of it again is down to in past companies, managers, people saying certain things. I've had I've had company owners walk out of interviews or not even attend them because the person that walks in is old. No way. So I did a short stint for a company. Wow. Um, and. We were hiring a videographer and I put together a shortlist and the chap came in and the CEO at the time, and it was his company, but he was, they called a wide boy. And he yeah. looked at the person, his words were in a thick Irish accent. I'm not interviewing him. He'll be going out on a gurney before I will. And I was that, he literally just walked out of the interview as he didn't actually attend it. Yeah. Had to conduct it myself. Wow. Um, knowing full well that because how old he looked, don't I mean, want to hire him. That, that is a great, a good and a bad example, if you like. But I, th I think you're right. I'm very much of a tip of a lot of clients and hiring managers have this perception that candidates have a, a self-entitlement about things. But my my gosh, and that of hiring managers that have done stuff like that, or they expect candidates to accept offers 15 grand under what it's always been, or the old archetypal position of, I expect this individual to run through a brick wall for me, and they offer no benefits and no reason to do that. And I think... It, it it boggles my mind how high managers in some companies think they sh they could hire people based on that kind of approach. What's your view on on that? Because I also think that it's the it's the three C's. It's the candidate, it's the consultant, and the client. All three of those have to be doing the right things for in order for recruiting to work. Yeah, I think you're right there, and it's like nail on the head. I think with the client, it's always this desire from the candidate to stand out, to be different, to get my attention but then you think well what's the client doing mm. in reciprocation to the candidate because mm. you get the same tired questions I did a post the other day that i basically put out you know put out quite bluntly don't ask the same questions to the same candidates because yeah. you're not going to interview the same candidates 
three people at the same time, different mm. backgrounds, different industries. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's about we demand a lot from our candidates, mm. but then the reality is that do we deliver to our candidates in terms of creating, you know, a, a fair interview environment with the right questions? I think it's still very much a case of they're still very archaic and perhaps more legacy based in how they interview. Yeah. It's, you know, the cliche of give me time that you've done this. And it's a case of, well, yeah. potentially a question that's situational might fit this brief in this candidate, mm -hmm. but no one's challenging that in the same manner that no one will challenge job adverts. You look at any job advert now on LinkedIn and question mm. when the last time it was one updated yeah, yeah. to challenge by a recruiter to say, do you already need this? Is this pertinent to the role? I mean, you see all the time where it's requirements of degrees or it's five years of experience. We know ourselves that mm -hmm. tenure doesn't generally guarantee quality. No. So, and then candidates too, I think to summarize, it's a case of, you know, are they putting their best foot forward? And it's always the blame culture of it's the ATS, it's the recruiter. But in reality is, did you write a good enough CV that's compelling? Did you write a cover letter? Did you convey yourself in the right manner to get the attention of recruiters? Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, you know, and recruiters too as well. It's a case of, yeah, how do we conduct ourselves? Are we delivering feedback when we need to? So it's not a what, it's not, recruiters get attacked on LinkedIn because of course it's easy to attack a recruiter or a company. Yeah. But for recruiters to come on to LinkedIn and say, John Smith, you know, took her offer, then didn't come back for four weeks and then went to start yesterday, then turned out he works, he's working somewhere else now. Yeah, you yeah. can't really say that because again, it's it, reputational damage and just, personal branding for yourself as a recruiter but i agree we sell the three kind of c's there all need to work in unison or at least be open mm. and transparent to change i think one of the c's that the client i think what they need to understand is that hiring isn't about putting an ad on writing a jd get involved with the recruiter it's i think it starts from and people might laugh at this values mm -hmm. you know are you making your decision based on your values? It's, 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 it's understanding intrinsically why someone would want to join the business, what's compelling about the business, what's the reason for the role, you know, what sort of criteria, what sort of behaviours and attitudes we want, and, and then the skills, and then the experience, and then we, have we got the right onboarding, the right interview process, the right, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, it, and then, then you go to hire. I think some people, just, they just jump to, oh, we've got, an, we've got a few interview questions, we've got a JD, let's go. It's also as well, people always talk about culture fit. And that's the worst thing you can do because basically you want, let's talk about like an accountancy team. They're all middle-aged white females. You yeah. know, you basically want to know one of those if it's culture fit. Right. But right. no one talks about culture ad totally agree. or culture blend. And yeah. I think that's where the key is there is mm. you want someone to come in with fresh ideas, a fresh approach, yeah. a fresh background. Don't just say we want someone from banking. Unless there's a definitive need why you need someone from banking mm. as an accountant. If not, then look beyond that, push the envelope. But I, I think agree. it's a case of, Mm. Managers try and play it safe as well. But in reality, sometimes that Hail Mary, that you yeah. know, outside the box candidate, and you know, self recruitment sometimes will surprise you. Yeah, no, absolutely. You touched on, and I think I've seen a post of yours that blew up. Um, and I must admit, about a decade ago, or more than a decade ago, about 15 or 20 years ago, um, I very much looked at job hoppers as people mm. who, uh, I was judgmental of them, basically, mm. um, but I see it completely differently now. And I know you've you get you've got a strong opinion on people who judge people who haven't been in a role for a particular amount of time. Mm -hmm. Looking at your profile yourself, may I say you've you've moved around a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see that as a strength mm -hmm. generally. What's your rebuttal if someone says, "Yeah, is, why is it a strength? He hasn't st stayed the course. He's been six months here, a couple of years here. There must be something wrong with him or her." It's always the case, isn't it, that you look at the candidate as the issue. And sometimes you're right, but sometimes, like anything, you're sold an opportunity. Yeah, you're sold a, a role, and sometimes, unfortunately, that does not portray what's on the tin. So mm. you'll come in there and you'll see behaviours, conduct, a process that perhaps isn't in line with your your ethics, yeah. your morals. Yeah. Sometimes also as well, you come to a company where you just find that it literally is chalk and cheese. And sometimes your way of recruiting or how you behave doesn't align. Equally as well, you perhaps promise certain things, certain mm. outcomes where it doesn't, doesn't align to your to anything that you want out of that career. I agree with that. I, th I think also it takes a strength for somebody to say, actually, this, this business isn't working for me. But also if you've got experience of five or six different environments and processes and people and visions and values, you know, whatever it is, 
that can really be beneficial as opposed to, oh, this guy's worked in the same industry for two different people. We've got to get him on board because he must be. But where's how's that going to enhance what you've already got? It's not going to enhance it. It's going to maintain it at best. Yeah. It's about showing the value, isn't it, as well, that despite being there for yeah. nine months, I achieved this. But I think, once again, I put a post out the other day around the um, region beta paradox. So mm. people often will be submersed in environments that are – they're, they're uncomfortable, but they're not massively uncomfortable. Right. They're bearable. So yeah, yeah. you will coast through your job. You won't be too, you know, mm. challenged, but you won't be too, you know, overwhelmed. But yeah. is that really what you want? And I think I did a lot of soul searching in my early career. And I thought oh, what my mum told me as well, my friends told me. And I just thought, well, I don't want to set up for mediocre. And then it's how long do you sit there and wait mm. for that to become special or that to progress. And unfortunately, mm. you know, in the current climate as candidates, we're afforded the opportunity to go and look at the market yeah. more intrinsically, more effectively, a touch of a phone. You know, you can sit on the toilet yeah. in a job that you hate, crying your eyes out on the toilet while scrolling through LinkedIn, applying to jobs. Yeah, 20 yeah. years ago, you had to stick it out or not go or true for the papers and post off CVs. On the CV point, you've got a hell of a lot of experience of CVs. You've been doing it for a number of years. What makes a good CV? What makes a bad CV? And do you think the CV itself is dying or will die soon? So, yeah, on the the, the CV front, I think Stephen Bartlett put a, a comment out that your social media is now your CV. I saw that. <laughs> and your CV's dead. Perhaps don't agree with that. I think, once again, social media itself is has its uh, his dark sides and portrays perhaps yeah. things like hustle culture and just, you know, you wear a lot of faces and what's on social media is not perhaps what's going on in real life. Totally. So I'd obviously challenge that in itself there. And the question obviously is then, well, what will, in essence, usurp a CV? Because Da Vinci created the first CV, I think over 500 years ago nearly now. So mm-hmm. in that time, it's evolved slightly, but what's changed from it or how is it going to be different in five, 10 years' time? Mm. You can look at video content, but you have extroverts, introverts, so my question to would be, right, okay, so series crap, they don't work, but then what's the alternative that not just works for you, but for everybody else that creates a level playing field? Yeah. So can you acquire video CV or your extroverts are like, this is a bit of me. Absolutely send, right. Uh, yeah, a bit more perhaps along the lines of being more meticulous, more methodical. You, yeah. Your introverts, I'm like, this is my time to shine. Yeah. So for CV, it's basically a blank canvas for you to sit there and portray what it is you do what makes you different from anybody else? Because most roles, you're not one of a kind. So you're saying it's actually more inclusive to have the CV as opposed to uh, if you're forced or asked to do a video thing, then you're kind of you're, you're decent. You're, you might be deselecting people who haven't got that confidence to do the video. Also, as well, if you're looking to work as a TV reporter, hundred percent, you need to have a video video yeah, CV. But if you're looking to hire a graphic designer. Mm. Or, or a full stack developer right. and making them submit a video CV as to why they're good at what yeah. they do. Also, most people really struggle in person to talk about why they're good at what they do mm. and what their drivers are, why they're unique. So ask them to put them on the spot to yeah. record it. And also, you know, constricted two minutes or three minutes, you know, they'll spend hours trying to perfect that perfect, yeah. you know, monologue of themselves. They'll lose interest. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, what makes a good CV? It's got to be clear and concise. It's yeah. got to basically paint you in a picture where there's no doubt that you are the best person at what you do in your field. Yeah. And that's not arrogance. That's just self-confidence. That's yeah, believing sure. in you. Yeah, yeah. Bad CVs, again, the problem is it's subjective. A CV is subjective because you can put on there pictures, colors, formats. In a certain industry, like, you know, marketing, it may stand out. But, you know, legal, you want to keep it to the brief. So, yeah. I think it's a case of, you know, in the first six, seven seconds. Totally. is a cliche, but, you know, if I can't tell what you do in the first, say, 10 seconds. That's true, though. You know, and let's, let's look at the market right now. In general, since COVID, like, there's been, yeah, people, there's been candidate shortages, quiet quitting, this and that. But, yeah. you know, we posted the role the other day in our company for a, a TA partner. And in 72 hours, 180 CVs. Wow. So, and to be fair, I'd say 80% were TA partners. Mm. So, again, it's, it's you know it's standing out isn't it and i think it's about trying to explain what a recruiter does because a candidate hearing the fact that most recruiters look at cvs within the first 11 seconds and make a judgment i I think i think we do Mm -hmm. and i think i think that the part of the reason for that is that we become skilled at it and we we have to make those decisions quite quickly don't we 
But how would you justify that to a candidate who says, "Well, you're not doing me, a, you're not doing me a, a service here. You're just not, you're making a decision based on the look and feel of my CV, basically in six seconds." Mm. Isn't that unfair? Unfair in the sense, if I had one CV to one job, I'd probably look at it longer. But then I'd probably say as well, that if in ten seconds I can't see that you work in, say, the TA space mm. for a TA role, which mm. requires the experience TA, you can tell quite quickly, what yeah. will I need to read on beyond mm. ten seconds for? So. One thing I'd say is that, you know, read the JD, because if you feel you fit the brief, the problem you get is that everyone has this one size fits all CV. You can tailor it, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. no one tailors a CV. Like you, you can see now, and it's mm. cover letter that, you know yourself, you've recruited enough people in your mm. own team and your businesses. Mm. You can smell a generic cover letter a mile off. Yeah. And so LinkedIn have got this new feature now where if you apply to a role, you can then send an AI-generated follow-up email. Yeah, uh, or email to the recruiter saying, "Hey, saw this job," and it basically pre-populates your profile saying, "I feel I fit the role because yeah. I've got X, Y, Z," and let's have a chat. But you can just tell, like a recruiter's gets slated for their copy and paste emails to candidates, it's now flipped to candidates doing it to recruiters now. So my goal yeah. is, well, if you've done that and yeah. we're slated for doing it ourselves, then by you doing it as a candidate, surely you're no better than mm. the recruiters that are slated for doing it themselves. So but, I think, yeah. no, in in that sense, it's a case of. You know, my goal is to put the best person for for the job, and recruiters want to help you. Like my goal is to fill that role. I want to get someone in that role that's good. I don't take pride from hitting the reject button on somebody. Unless, of course, you know you work at Morrison's Fish Counter and you're applying to a head of IT. Mm, great to have, happen. Great to have ambition, but it's been ambitious. <laughs> yeah, and it's been audacious. So yeah, for me, sure. I want people to get the job. But equally as well, recruiters also are on your side. Believe it or not. We have to go to our stakeholders with four or five CVs yeah. and say, Chris, you wanted this well filled. You gave me the criteria of these five things. Here are five CVs that I know meet your brief because that's my reputation there. That's my credibility as a recruiter. Yeah. If I mess up that shortlist, yeah. I lose trust in the management team. I lose trust in my candidates. So we're basically matchmakers in the middle here. Even though we're employed by the company internally, yeah, sure. I'm here to support you and help you, but help me to help you. Fascinating. I want to I want to delve um, a bit more into recruitment. One more question about recruitment. Then we want to talk about you as a human being, mate, as well. Sure. Um, talent acquisition versus recruitment uh, itself. Dispel the myth that talent acquisition is just washed up recruiters or failed recruiters versus you know you've done a couple of two or three TA roles. You've also done normal recruitment, right? So what's, yeah, sure. What's the difference? I think I always find when I went to an agency, it was majority. It was more reactive because you literally will fish for the roles that come out there yeah. and then. Yeah. And whilst you sort of will pipeline candidates and so forth, it's very active. Also as well, you would have to basically manage multiple stakeholders in multiple companies. So, mm, and I agree. You know, in all honesty, we've all been there, I'll admit it too as well. I had a lot of roles with a lot of companies. If one I could tell was paying less or didn't suit my needs, I would then not prioritize it. And guess what? Because I wasn't basically employed by the company, they wouldn't come and sit at my desk and go done with my CVs. No. They would just move on to another agency. So I think yeah. uh, I think also in agency it's easier to hide if you don't want to do the work, mm. but equally it's hard to get the work. So it's a case of, you know, you have to basically each ensure each can that you sure it's literally nailed on and it's perfect. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's a harder graft. It basically yeah. it's it's hard to kind of cut into that. It's hard to move into internal recruitment from agency because again, it's the whole impression about you just Sling CVs at shortlists. But I think with talent acquisition, you have to manage up, down, sideways. You've got the demands of the hiring manager, haven't you? And you've got the budgets. You've got the deal. With, you've still got to deal with the candidates a little bit as well, and the agencies. So I think you've got. I think you've got more sophisticated plates to spin. Actually, it's everything. TA now get involved in things around recruitment marketing, mm. the L and D strategy, onboarding. Mm, they look exactly. at the actual yeah. attraction piece, the retention piece. You know, stakeholder engagement, training, the amount of managers that need training on just the process and how to basically screen a candidate interview. And also, like I mentioned earlier, if you're given a role by a manager, you, you need that shortlist by that time scale. Yeah. You yeah. can't go and hide from that. So in essence, you're required to deliver more frequently within more pretty tighter timescales internally than you are externally. I agree. So let's hear a bit more about you then, mate. Um, paint us a picture of your journey since school to now, please. Since school? Um, Remember that far back? <laughs> it's literally, it is 20 years now. Um, it's over my half my life. And I, I drive past my school quite a lot and I just think, I want to shout out the window to the kids there. You don't know how lucky you kids have got it. It's a, it's a breeze, you know, nine till three. Um, I was I was smart at school. I think I had a lot of anger issues, supposedly. 
don't see it now. I'm generally now the most laid back person. I'm blunt and sarcastic as they come, but I'm pretty laid back. So school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and I think for the trend of people that had no idea what the goal was, I stayed at sixth form and just hated it. Right. Went to work full time over Christmas and that was it. I was like, I like money. And I think someone said, you know, if you either earn or learn, if you can do both, great. If you can't do both, get out. I wasn't really learning at school. Mm. Anything that I, I saw benefit in. So, mm. yeah, worked worked in retail. I think everyone, you know, that's coming through that sort of 16 to 20 gap, whether you're full-time or in an university, yeah. you'll do jobs in retail, hospitality, you know, leisure. So yeah. cut my teeth doing that. I was always pretty good at people and always able to kind of articulate my points and get across, you know, to kind of sell, upsell, cross-sell. But I think, you know, my mum died when I was 19 and never really had a father figure growing up. Uh, just mum had different boyfriends at different points in my life, but there was never kind of a, a role model to kind of aspire to or to look up to. My mum, for all the faults, you know, ran her own ironing company and cleaning company, which of course was, you know, trying to support two teenage boys was admirable. Yeah. Um, whilst being an alcoholic as well. But right. that's not kind of the, you know, whilst it's admirable with the graph that she put in, it's kind of not where you want to put yourself as a as a role model. Was she an alcoholic throughout your childhood then? Pretty, pretty much. I think, you know, looking back now as a child, you didn't really know any different. And it was, you know, if you go to supermarkets now, there's big bottles of vodka that you buy would neck it one a day. Right. And wow. see what to me, that's putting us to sleep and, you know, probably a, a, a dirty hangover for the next day. But to mm -hmm. her, just kept her level. And she'd drive the car, she'd go to work still, would still function with it, which is the most scariest thing. So how did not having a father uh, and really a functioning mother really hmm. um, affect you? And has it how has it affected you now? I think not having a father whilst mother did mum did like most of like the dad duties like yeah footballs on sunday and just you know still played her part definitely made me i think a better dad right because my daughter's five now i probably despite the hours that i worked that are, that are crazy and just sometimes you know um un unsociable mm -hmm. i still try and make time for my daughter and she's you know it's definitely food lack of not having that father-daughter or, fa or father-son yeah. relationship has made me, in my opinion, a really engaged and, and caring parent. I find that really interesting. I can relate to that myself. I, my mum left me when I was two. My father wasn't really around either. And it kind of, it forced me to feel, in, and I, I felt the rejection, the unworthiness, the abandonment. And I think I said to myself, I'd never want to put my own children through that. So I kind of learned how not to parent. Yeah. You know, would you say that's similar to you? Exactly. Yeah, I think you can't you can't miss what you never had, but mm. you can know what you've missed. So, you know, my daughter will never go about. She won't be spoiled, but she'll never go about. She'll never know what it is to want in terms of that way. Yeah, but do you, has that affected your mental health in any way? Uh, your well being? Have you had any? What? What? Can you remember any particular times when you felt like giving up or darkness? That kind of stuff going on myself no i think my problem is that i i do compartmentalize a lot of my emotions i think mm. losing your, your parent and your sole parent at 19 and then becoming care of guardian to your brother who's 17 it's kind of like a slap in the face and a wake-up call and you don't generally get much time to really sit there with and to really do with what's going on you just you just carry on and i think Mm. that's why now I think looking back and I still probably haven't grieved for my mum's passing which has yeah. been 18 years in um in November but yeah it's it's a really funny one in the way that I've yeah I think I'm the sort of person where I mask my emotions with humor mm. and and comedy because I don't like those conversations around how I'm feeling and it's always that probism of how you're feeling. It's like, I'm fine, but how are you? So, yeah, of course. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's been times when I've had a few wobbles here and there, but I think just generally, I always think losing a parent at 19 and being your brother's guardian, you know, at that age, mm. nothing generally apart from anything happened to my daughter could ever be that harrowing or impactful. No. It's really going to make me kind of question, 
my mental state, which sounds really weird, but it doesn't yeah. actually. How did how did she die? It it was a it was a weird one. So she got really really ill one day, and she um collapsed at home, and went to hospital. Uh, and I remember going to see her. And I think she was also she was diagnosed with bowel cancer as well, but that wasn't what killed her. Right. Um, went to go and see the hospital, and yeah, the last time she said to me, I went to bend over to give her a kiss goodbye and let on her stomach, and. She was like, oh, you know, that really hurts, Dominic. Don't do that. And that was the last word she said to me was that. Mm-hmm. And um, over the night, she, I think she choked on her own vomit. And then it went downhill from there. And then next day, went and saw her. And she was literally just comatose, just tubes all down her. Mm. And yeah, like you didn't get a chance to probably say goodbye to your mum. So one of those ones where it was sudden, it was quick. And it just, yeah, it was quite raw. So do you feel then that, it's kind of with you, if it's not broke, don't try and fix it as in you don't feel, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, you don't feel a requirement to go back, process all that kind of stuff, grieve out and move forward. You feel you're coping out as you want to cope. Because there's, there's, there's people say you've got, you've got to process it before you can move, you've got to go back before you go forward, all that kind of what's your What's your view on all that kind of stuff? I think when she passed away, there was definitely sort of a, a hole or a gap in my heart. As as cheesy as it sounds, I think my daughter's filled that. I think, of course, yeah. Looking back, I, I always had something missing, like mm. for years and years and years. And I think, mm. you know, I moved to London off the back of that, and right. you know, I thought in London, everyone would come see me, or my mates will. No one came. Looking back, I probably was depressed then because I worked in different gyms in gym sales, and then right, okay. I actually walked out of a job. Um, worked at um, LA Fitness and. Hated that much. I literally walked out of there and had no money, no job. And I remember walking towards Blockbuster video when it was open. Yeah. With a suitcase with my Xbox in there, all my games, all my DVDs, and trading that in for, I think, 350 quid to last me with no job to go to. And I remember getting another job and having to literally have Smart Price frozen vegetables, pasta, and Smart Price tomato sauce for like two weeks to keep me going one meal a day until mm. I got paid. So that's why I'm always tell people, look, you know, your mental health is obviously important, but yeah. always value kind of like your ability to kind of still survive yeah. off that. So yeah, I guess in a way you're right, that did impact mental health in a way that I, yeah, mm. it was a struggle. I mean, I, I've been very poor. I've been very rich. I've been in between. I've, I've been in situations where I can't afford to eat, loads of stuff, uh, homeless, Blah, blah, but I think I think sometimes in those situations they're they're very dark and they're very difficult to manage. But I feel that's where you, without sounding too cheesy myself, that is where the real growth happens. Is, is a bit of a test, isn't it? It's how you come through that. Yeah, I think people need to kind of go through hardship. People need to kind of go through that whole. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to, you know, you need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Because that's how, how growth happens. I think mm. it's that it's that sort of um, comparison, isn't it, between um, privilege and mindset. Yeah, right. People that are given privilege, um, obviously, sort of, some often squander it. Those that are given or generate a mindset generally are a lot more successful than those with privilege. Yes. Equally as well, if you combine both of them, mm. it's a powerful entity. But mm. you know, mindset is something that kind of is is born out of you know distress or tough times, dark times, and you know. It's, you know, I was like, I never want to go hungry again. I never want to be mm. that person where I have to literally scrimp and save just to have a meal. And I think yeah. that's put me to where I am now. So looking back on your life now, how would you assess your progress, your success? I think for someone who's nearly 37, who left school at 16, for the best part of 10 years to 26 Sample as I call it, the jobs buffet, different jobs, different companies. Mm-hmm. I think subconsciously, I took with me things that I enjoyed in those jobs, yes. things that I didn't enjoy on my CV from early years. There's a lot of companies that I left off of there that I literally went in there. And it wasn't down to me not having that sticking power. It was just, I knew straight away the environment was, was not one for me. Yeah. I, I worked at a business mobiles company in Hangar Lane for three weeks. Okay. Not in the CV. It was the most toxic company I've ever seen in my life. And right. I think you have to almost, again, sample different companies yeah. and environments. If you were one one firm for 10 years, 
how do you compare a toxic environment? Whereas if you've been out there and sampled different companies, how they conduct themselves, absolutely. That's yeah. So I think that's kind of where where it's, it's drawn to today. But so I get the sense no, no real counselling, no real therapy. You know, your, your mum dying. How did you cope? I mean, a lot of people turned to to drink and drugs. Did, did you have any of that going on? Um, no. Things I don't. I've never smoked. Never done drugs. Drinking, I did the whole teenage, you know, yeah. out with the lads. But yeah. I mean, if I was told tomorrow that I couldn't drink the rest of my life, it wouldn't bother me. Okay. Yeah. So I guess I didn't seek any any sort of comfort in any sort of substances. Mine was more of a sort of a flight or flight response. I think, mm. you know, I lived in the nice part of Berkshire, um, inherited a council house of my mum, and had I stayed there by now, would have probably been mine. I would have probably paid it off at 36 and been worth easily three, 400K. Right. But mm. being 19 naive, it was the flight or flight response. I was like, you need to get out of here. It's yeah. all too, it's, the memories are too here to too. Of course. Uh, and I, I ran to London, you know, opportunities and so forth. But, you know, 36-year-old me would have told 19-year-old me just, you know, there's memories here for a reason, stick at it, don't run away because mm. in one of the way you kind of push people away. And I think for a while I was quite alone. And I think when you were, and I think that's why now I prefer my own company yeah. and I'm happy being alone. People confuse being alone with being lonely. I see, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm the same. I think that, um, not to judge anybody, but some people, they, they can't function. They can't sit there on their own. And I think I think it's important to do that. On that point, I, I want to talk about relationships. I want to talk about how what's happened to you has affected your relationship. But how would you describe your relationship with yourself? How's that? How's that changed, if at all? Uh, over the last few years, it's gotten better. I think I definitely sought sort of some comfort, perhaps in food rather than drugs. So, you know, I went through a big weight loss at the back end of senior school, and then death of my mother just pile it back on again right. i'm a sort of person where you know i look at a burger and put on weights and my attitude towards food was poor yeah and i think you know and that didn't help in terms of i think just relationships to other people i think you know you know yourself when you look and feel good you give a better version of yourself yeah and i kind of resent how i didn't take care of myself for so long mm. in terms of my own, own body and i think that also affected myself mentally mm. you know last year um was really unwell when i had gout i had an inflamed liver oh, and no. i think my metabolic age was like 55 no way 35 right. and i was like well my daughter's five like four or five i was like this is not fair on her as well i'm not doing the best for her and that's me being selfish so i think health-wise too like i've gone on a massive weight loss journey as well and try i'm still still a big lad but going in the right direction yeah but i think by taking care of my own physical health it's improved my mental health which in turn's improved my career totally agree with that you mentioned your daughter three or four times. I mean, personally, my I, th I do believe my children have saved me in terms of giving me a purpose and kind of grounded me and all that kind of stuff. I want to talk about relationship, your relationship with your daughter. How how, that, how has that changed you as a, as a man? I think I'm a lot more patient now. I think I'm a lot more understanding. I think also I sometimes, I always wanted results quicker. So my daughter... Mm. She's got SPD, which means sensory processing disorder. It's it's not autism, but it's basically where she'll take a long time to pick up things like yeah. speech, just general motor skills and right. and you know her emotions. So I think that's helped me become a lot more patient with just life in general and how mm -hmm. I deal with people because you you know on the surface she's perfectly normal, um, but she's trying to process things all the time around texture, smell, sounds, and everything, and it's yeah. just. I think as a father, you also become a lot more, you see the world in a different way as well. You, you, the things that you would perhaps notice that you do now as a parent. So mm. for me, I've just learned to exercise more patience, more understanding, yeah. which is not just her, but with people. Mm -hmm. I think I, I, you know, in my nature, I'm quite a blunt, direct person by, by nature. But yeah. I think in having yeah. a child, I've definitely become a lot more, I've stepped back assess situation and being more proactive than reactive to things that happen. Do you still see your um, brother? Yeah. So he's, you know, we had a falling out. I think, you know, he went the way that I didn't when my mum passed away. He went to the drink and drug side. Okay. Um, which, you know, and 
yeah, I think I, I kicked him out of the house at 17, 18 because he was just literally was was wasting his life. And, and at mm. the time, of course, that was a reactive thing to do. I should have been more supportive. But, you know, in essence, it kind of made him become a man because he's now got a really good job. He's got a wife and he's, you know, he's made a, a great career of himself as someone who literally, like me, lost a parent early mm. in, his, in his life. Mm. And what about, you're married, aren't you? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and... Not separated, but yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so talk to us about going, going back to, you're 37 years old. I, I, I think that age is pretty much you're in your prime. Mm. I'd say. What, what, what do you want to achieve in the next uh, period of your life? So the five-year plan is basically just to have overall just health to start with because mm. I think my biggest fear is not being there for my daughter when she grows up. Right. I think I look back over, you know, my mum never saw mm. her granddaughter. She never saw me have a career. Like I wanted to be a police officer when I was younger, which, um, you know, or you know, an architect first and a police officer. So I think for me... And the cliche health is wealth, but yeah, it's true. Take care of myself first. I want to continue what I'm doing in the TA space and the content space, just basically carving out more, you know, of a an audience to kind of promote and understand. Yeah, because again, you know yourself. There's a lot of it's like an echo chamber and a smorgasbord of shit about people talk about careers advice on there, and oh god, right. everyone's a career coach now because they literally watched one video by somebody else, or yeah. you know, or it's don't put the green banner up on LinkedIn, do put it up. And so I think my goal is to kind of continue growing that and dispelling myths, but still for myself, still be a good parent to my daughter, yeah. um, have a career that I can be proud of. I think, and also I think I want my daughter to look back and be like, you know, I had a good childhood. My dad worked hard, but he still had quality time with me. Yeah. I think having kids also makes you realign. And you always hear those stories about parents that, that, that are sort of 60 odd now that say the biggest regret I ever had was working too much. Yes. And not course. seeing my kids enough. So I want the next sort of, if I was to strike up that balance of being successful in work, mm. but equally as well being the best dad that I can to my daughter. And that I want people, yeah. I want, as in an arrogant way, when people hear my name, that they smile. There's, yeah. no, there's no wincing. There's no like, oh, it's, you know, my name would always put a smile on someone's face because of what I've done, how I've conducted myself, things that I've said, things that I've done. And even like now, the content that I put out, mm. I always get an email saying, you made me laugh today or, you know, yeah, it right. resonates with me. I think just continue to do that. But the goal of a bigger audience, like I always say, I want to do a TED talk. Okay. Um, you know, I'm writing a book right now as well that I want to release that. Oh, wow. Um, Is that recruitment or? The book's basically, it's... It's about the analogous behavior of people in relationships and in careers because, you know, paradoxically, they are very, very similar. Like if you look at, mm. you know, interviews like dates, people stay in relationships too long because yeah. it's comfortable. Same with jobs. Absolutely. I think so. the, the book, the premise of the book is to kind of help people one signpost and realize mm. when they're stuck in like this career comfortable complacency too afraid to leave the career too afraid to leave relationship correct so the idea is to kind of help them take charge of their careers right if it results in people then leaving their partners i don't want to be cited in divorce proceedings as my books the reason why they left the partner Mm. but if it helps someone get out get out of their own way and in their career and in their relationships then why not Mm. having having that courage to kind of set those boundaries and i think that um I've, i've got i've got friends that have been in one company for 20 years and they look at me as, as, as the risk taker because I've been an entrepreneur. I've bought and sold businesses. I've won and lost businesses. But I see my friends like that as I think it's more risky to stay in one particular personally, in one particular role, one particular, not relationship necessarily, because you only get one life. But everyone's, everyone's got their own opinion, haven't they? You almost find nowadays, though, that it's almost the a similar kind of view on people that stay in companies 10, 20 years as is the job hoppers. Well, yeah. this person stayed in their company 10 years. What's really advanced in their company 10 years or in their role in 10 years or how they moved about to kind of really show the value? Whereas, mm. you know, I've worked in banking, fintech, e-commerce payments, yeah. foreign currency, um, yeah. all in five years. So I'd argue that I understand all these industries now. I worked as a senior recruiter and I head of TA. Mm. So in five years, people will see it as job hoppy. 
you can see it's what you want to, but I see mm. that's progression there because I started at that point on that salary. I'm now on a higher point, a higher salary with a bigger network following. I would argue more credibility about what I say and how I post it. Mm. And uh, no one's really ever questioned now why I job hop because they can see the projection. It's not a case of just doing a different company, different role yeah. and transcending, is it? Okay, so from that other perspective where, where we're saying um, – a client needs to understand what makes a good candidate for you. What makes a good client? Why have you joined your last couple of clients? What do you tend to look for in your own process? So where I work now, they're very, very open to suggestions, market intel. Where I work now, you know, you can bring the market intel on mm. a role and say, you know, what you pitched here is 10K shy of the market average. Yeah. And they listen to it and they'll go away and they're action it. And they're, you know, it's either that or they say, right, okay, so perhaps we want a head of what we're paying is more of a senior manager. So I think it's a case of, you know, they trust, like the company I joined now was a year ago, had five people in TA. Yeah. So now I've got 15. Yeah. But these, you know, they're some of the best recruiters that I've worked with, some of the best hires that I've made. And they provide credibility. So I think the, the people that you hire in your TA team are the ones that kind of really make or break how mm. your managers perceive you and clients because they add credibility in how they conduct themselves, what they say, what they bring to the table in terms of yeah. market intel, advice, right. pushing back in a way that's constructive, not um, you know, defensive. And that's kind of where I think, you know, I've always found that managers will always push back based on what they know. But yeah. what they generally know is the world that they live in, not the world of recruitment and how we base it. And also it's understanding, like, like you said earlier, what do recruiters do? Well, yeah. Don't just take your job and put it on LinkedIn. Hope for the best. No, we do. We do. You know, mar we do recruitment marketing. We do. You know, outreach. We pipeline. We we market map. All these things that go on behind the scenes that you don't see. Yeah. To basically become a good recruiter, to then know that right, your role is paying five k less, or yeah. the role that you're advertising for, two competitors are paying ten grand more than you. Yeah. That's the difference. I always say when when I'm in, I've interviewed tens of thousands of people in my twenty five years in different guises. I always. You know, it's the questions they ask and the responses that they give me. But for me, I think you can tell more by someone's questions as an interviewee than their answers sometimes, right? Someone who's asking the right questions is really important. What do you think? What and what advice could you give to candidates out there struggling to find roles or whatever? Yeah, I think I did a post about it last week as well. Um, so probably when I said this comes out about mid-August. Yeah. And I put on there questions to ask people. Oh, brilliant, right. And it's things around ESG, CSR. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, things around, you know... Um, things that are pertinent to you as, as a candidate. So I think, yeah, we've all been now sales recruiters. Yeah. When you interview someone, I think it's also set the agenda at the start and say, right, how long will I have to ask you questions? Because yeah, right. you find often that you get like a five minute sort of like at the end, yeah. window where you've got to cram in everything you say. You want to make sure that what you ask is, is concise. Yeah, but yeah. then you don't really get the chance to really perform. So I think just set the agenda from the up and just go, right, we're here for an hour now. How long will I have to ask you questions? Mm. Puts on the back foot a little bit, but equally as well, you then take back control because there's so much submissive behavior by candidates about, I hope they like me, when in yeah. reality it's a case of, well, no, I'm here to see if they're worth my time as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I, th I think bringing the right questions about what you want to know yeah. around values, the mission statement. And I'd always argue that put it back on them because the idea yeah. is they want to see you squirm. If they can't answer what their ESG is yeah. or the CSR is, how one, as a firm, do they communicate with their staff and employees? Mm. How engaged are they? And how do they understand the mission statement? If they can't answer that as a, as a senior manager, to me as a recruiter, yeah. as a candidate, that's alarm bells. It's about trying not to put them too much on a pedestal and realizing or having the mentality or the mindset that they need you as much as you need them kind of thing. Because that should be the case anyway. It should almost be a two-way street. Like, to the point where I've, I've done posts where I've been shot down where, you know, you know people say you can't expect a candidate to interview a, a client that much. Of course you can, but I think, I think there's a fine line to it, right? But I think candidates should be able to ask questions as, as much as they like really to an extent. But again, it's back to that the dating side of it, isn't it? Like you, if you're going to go on a date, you want to make sure, of course, that you're not sat there with your partner, yeah. potential partner there, just sat there firing questions at you. You want to be like, well, no, I want to make sure that you're going to be a good partner to me. So yeah. I need to sit there and probe and understand yeah. without being rude what you bring to the table because you're sat there asking me what I bring. Well, yeah. you know, it's exactly. again, so analogous, isn't it? Yeah. And then you realize six months later what they're like, but if you ask questions on the interview. This is it. This is, this is why myself, look, you know, in hindsight, 
I should have asked more probing, better questions. Well, in it's these the same. Roles. I think you saw my post today actually about the job brief. If you're not asking, mm. you're not qualifying the job brief, then it's your fault. You, you can't moan if you haven't got a decent candidate to find because the yeah. job the, the job brief shit. Yeah, exactly, hundred percent. So, so it's just it's challenging the status quo, yeah. not just going on what's there as uniform, mm. and just being and actually asking the right questions. We're coming very close to the end. I mean, I, I wish we had actually had more time. I mean, what what um. What pisses you off about the recruitment sector? I think a lot of people do a lot of moaning on posts and content, but don't provide a lot of solutions. Um, so true. I think a lot of people just, again, do it for the whole point of, let's put a post out about recruitment to gain likes and, and invoke a conversation to then generate views. But I think it's what's been done about it. And it's, you know, if you're going to moan about something, are you moan about onboarding? provide a solution say yeah. like, here's what i think should be done i think recruitment yeah. as a whole is that i think i did a post here a while back now about different types of recruiters and what our remit is it was like rpmsp internal agency the amount I didn't know what we did mm. as well was, was shocking and that was one of the best performed posts yeah right might help with spider-man meme as well there that could have helped too to kind of again like but <laughs> i think what's wrong with recruitment right now is again it's also the training it's it's why do you want to get into recruitment? Because it's anyone can literally fall out of college, you know, um, you know, fall out of university, you know, get, get kicked, yeah. you know, just get kicked into a suit and tie, yeah. put on the phone to make calls and, and just bash KPIs without a purpose. Mm. And ultimately, it's like any job you want to do there, find out what recruitment, what's your why in recruitment? If you can't answer that, yeah, don't do it because again, you're literally affecting people's lives and careers here by just acting in a nonchalant, laxistical manner. Brilliant. So, as a, as a final kind of question, what would you like to leave the audience with in terms of any piece of advice, anything recruitment related or life related, really? Yeah, I just think you know, over the last couple of years, I've done a lot of soul searching too as well. I spent a lot of time alone with my own, with myself and working on what I wanted out of life and what made me happy. I think just as cliche as it sounds, you're on this planet once, you know, mm. don't settle for mediocrity. Don't settle for okay. You know, people deserve to be happy. Whether that's in your careers, in your relationships. And if you are content with just having, you know, a mediocre life, good for you. But I guarantee you now, yeah, a lot of people now are listening to this podcast, waking up next to a partner they don't want to be with anymore, going to a job they don't want to be in right now because it's not really serving them any value or purpose. Mm. So I'd say that, you know, and pe- change is the biggest fear of all, isn't it? People always fear change. Yeah, so I think just to sort of leave that there is that, you know, life's too short to be miserable. So if it makes you happy to go and work somewhere else or be with someone else, do it. On that note, um, absolutely delighted to have you on. You're, you're a great guy and um, I can't wait to see what's next for you. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. 